0: This is JAMDA On The Go, your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman.
1: Welcome to JAMDA On The Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the July 2021 issue of JAMDA, the Journal of the Society for post and Long-Term Care Medicine. As always, we will be speaking with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health, He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at the Cecil G. Shepp Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Doctors Brown and Sloan, welcome again back to JAMDA On The Go. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks, Wayne. So what will we be reviewing today from the July 2021 issue of JAMDA? Well,
2: I'll be talking about a paper on nighttime agitation in dementia as a possible manifestation of restless leg syndrome, and then also one about cognitive reserve and whether it is meaningful when a patient complains about their memory.
3: And I'll be discussing a very interesting study around the differential effect of hypertensive drug classes on dementia risk, as well as a study on rejection of care and aggression during care in persons with dementia.
1: Sounds like a wonderful group of articles to discuss for a, an issue that has the theme of dementia. So let's go to the first article, Nighttime Agitation in Persons with Dementia as a Manifestation of Restless Leg Syndrome. You know, Dr. Sloan, as I was reviewing this article, I couldn't help but think that when dementia is in a uh, group of uh, diagnoses or, or medical history for an individual, it really does predominate. And sometimes uh, other issues are lost, but they're issues that could be impactful uh, on dementia. Uh, and it seems that this article kind of uh, shows that to be true.
2: That is so true, Wayne. You know, we do know that, for example, that when people with dementia are agitated, you do have to look for other things. Mm. Um, you know, you look for, you know, whether they've got a, something going on in their bladder or whether they're constipated, you know, or um, you know, uh, various medical things, whether they have pain. Um, well, this was a fascinating sub-study of persons, um, 76 of them, age 55 and older with Alzheimer's disease, most of whom were long-term care facility residents. I think just a handful were not. And they had nighttime agitation and were diagnosed with restless leg syndrome. So it's part of a bigger study that had recruited 210 persons with dementia, nighttime agitation and sleep disturbance, and then screened them for restless leg syndrome. So that's kind of the first kind of take home, which is um, that the investigators found that 36% of their sample of people with Alzheimer's disease who had sleep disturbance and agitation at night, which happens a lot, met the diagnostic criteria for restless leg syndrome. Hmm. Now we don't know if some dementia behaviors look enough like restless leg syndrome to meet the criteria, but it's a very interesting thought because there, there are things we can do for that. If that's really the diagnosis. So anyway, they based their diagnosis on what's called the behavioral indicators test for restless legs. It's a relatively new clinical evaluation method, first published in 2015. And it's interesting because it can be applied to persons with cognitive impairment rather than having to strap them down to wire their legs to things at night that will measure um, their leg movement. It includes six clinical and eight behavioral indicators The clinical indicators were obtained from family staff or the medical record. They include such things as leg discomfort, difficulty falling asleep, daytime fatigue, a history of iron deficiency, family history of restless leg syndrome or diabetes. These are all risk factors for it. The behavioral indicators were obtained by a 20 minute observation during the early evening, you know, before bedtime and included things like, do, do they rub their legs or feet? Mm-hmm. Uh, with their hands. Do they kick? Do they, are they pushing their legs? And they, they would quantitate this. It's pretty simple to do. Rub the legs together, stretch the legs and so on. And uh, in the 2015 study, this measure was validated against motion sensory measurement of leg movement. So it sounds like it's pretty good measure and pretty interesting for clinicians because you can do mm-hmm. it. This paper describes the 76 people from the 210 in the overall sample the 76 who tested positive using this behavioral indicators test for restless legs.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Average age was 82. Most were dependent in mobility with only a quarter able to walk independently. So they were pretty advanced in their dementia. Their mean many mental state was 10 indicating moderate or severe dementia. Their sleep was fragmented with a lot of restlessness and the wake time during the night. Cause they had them where these activity watches, which, um, are movement indicators that are pretty good for identifying sleep and wakefulness at night. And they were reported by the staff or family of agitated behaviors, both during day and night. Half were on antidepressants, 18% on antipsychotics, 38% on antihistamines. And these are important statistics because antipsychotics, antihistamines, SSRIs, SNRIs, and trazodone have all been shown to exacerbate restless leg syndrome. So we're beginning to see some possibilities for things, even if you don't go to the specific medications that are available for restless legs. Interestingly, very few had iron deficiency using the usual diagnostic criterion of low serum ferritin. But the investigators uh, did find an association between low transferrin saturation and nighttime agitation. And they hypothesized that maybe uh, it's a more sensitive indicator of low brain iron status which is thought to be a key etiologic factor in restless leg syndrome. Yes, indeed. So if you, yeah, if you think about it, older people don't eat a lot of iron. They you don't know, just, they don't need a lot, especially people with dementia. So very interesting stuff about you know drugs and possibly iron stores is something that might be able to be done about this kind of restless at night. So take home messages. First, clearly it's to think of restless leg syndrome as a possibility in persons with dementia. Who show agitation and sleep disturbance at night? After that, I'm a bit unclear what is best to do next. You know how to do the diagnostic workup and how much to do. I think you know figuring out a way to, you know, talk a staff member into doing this. You know, 10-20 minute observation, um, so you can kind of do that test would be a lot better than sending them to a sleep lab or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. This is, after all, a descriptive study. You know, we don't have data showing that treating for restless leg syndrome will meaningfully reduce symptoms, which is kind of the next step. But it sure provides food for thought. So, what do you all think about this, Wayne Mallory? Does this is this a cha- practice-changing study for you?
1: know, well, I, I will. Uh, I'll chime in, uh, Dr. Sloan, and I'll say that um, I took this article in a at a at a higher. Big bigger picture level, um, it reinforces a teaching point that I think re- will resonate with with both of you, um, and something that I use all the time in geriatrics. It uh, it just go it just proves that uh, older adults um, do not follow Occam's razor. The simplest uh, the simplest solution is not always the correct one my my favorite story that i use when i when i teach this point is a is an is an older adult who came to me in consultation for uh, a question of depression and she insisted she was not depressed had been placed on a number of antidepressants and she insisted that she was not depressed but she was uh, but her affect was poor she was um very tired um listless uh and her children were sure that she was depressed and she had sleep apnea Mm -hmm. once we addressed the sleep apnea she Mm -hmm. was great (laughs) so this um so this paper for me um albeit important the importance is not so much the dementia and the restless leg as um look deeper you know
3: That's a really good point. I think it's just a nice reminder that, um, agitation can be coming from so many different places and isn't it, it's fairly easy to treat restless leg. So Mm. it's a nice, it's a really nice thing to be thinking about. So for me, it is a practice changer and it it makes me stop and think a little bit more broadly about the differential. I thought it was a a great paper.
1: Wonderful discussion. Um, let's go to our next paper. Uh, Uh, Anti-hypertensive Medication Classes and the Risk of Dementia, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. You know, uh, Dr. Brown, this paper also I I kind of took at a higher level, although the the intricacies of of it are very interesting. Mm -hmm. Really, what we always do or think about always doing because what we are taught and actually... Uh, understanding that maybe we should change our thinking in some ways or think broader about a very common uh, issue such as hypertension. Tell us a little bit more about this study.
3: Absolutely. Um, as a family physician who has not only the pleasure of working in long-term care, but also in a full scope family medicine practice, this, this paper was really, um, really informative. And I so appreciate jammed up putting out this work. So we all know dementia prevalence is increasing with an expected climb from 50 million cases worldwide last year to more than 150 million cases in 2050. Um, while we remain without a curative treatment, unfortunately, we do know and we've talked a lot about several modifiable risk factors that could and should be focused on as preventive strategies. And one of the most important preventive strategy is treating midlife hypertension. It's high prevalence and widely available effective medical treatments make optimizing antihypertensive treatment a potentially promising, uh, also inexpensive and scalable strategy to reduce dementia incidents worldwide. Blood pressure controlling medications can reduce the chance of having dementia. But in fact, some are actually more effective than others Through mechanisms beyond just lowering the pressures. The literature to date, however, has been varied in the methods and results utilized, and so this particular study set out to systematically review and synthesize the evidence on differential associations between antihypertensive medication classes and the risk of incident dementia. The authors reviewed randomized control trials and prospective cohort studies that compared associations of different antihypertensive medication classes with incident all-cause dementia and or Alzheimer's disease um, over at least a one-year period of follow-up. Ultimately, they took 15 observational studies and seven randomized control trials to be included. Data on antihypertensive medication classes were available for approximately 650,000 participants and dementia occurred in just about 20,000 of those participants, so about 3% of the participants included. In this network meta-analysis, use of either calcium channel blockers or angiotensin receptor blockers was associated with a 12 to 17% lower dementia risk <laughs> when compared with ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. Um, compared with diuretics, this reduction was 7 to 11%, but that was not considered significant. I particularly liked this study because of the population-based observational studies taking place in regular care, as I alluded to before, um, working in a primary care setting, it was, it was really nice to see this was done just sort of in regular care settings. Um, they followed guidelines that account for patient characteristics and comorbidities that was increased, which increased the generalizability to hypertensive patients in real world clinical practice. Yeah. I'm planning to use the results presented here as I continue conversations in my outpatient practice for sure. So, bottom line, recommending calcium channel blockers or angiotensin receptor blockers as preferred first line antihypertensive treatment for middle aged adults may significantly reduce the risk of dementia. If corroborated in a randomized setting, these findings reflect a low cost and also quite scalable opportunity. To reduce dementia incidents worldwide, no,
4: you, think- you know
3: I
1: don't, you know I don't want to get too techy on everyone here. But <laughs> um, uh, after I read this paper, I thought about predictive analytics. So wouldn't it be great to have, um, you know, someone who you find has hypertension, and on your in your electronic medical record, it pops up that after analyzing. The geography and prevalence of dementia in, the, in this in this patient's community, um, a, their comorbidities, family history. There, you know, is a higher percentage of a risk for uh, the syndrome of dementia, and would recommend a calcium channel blocker or an adrenergic receptor blocker. Um, I, I, I I just think it's such a a great study that puts it, mm-hmm. that puts it all together,
3: You really did. You
2: know, I, I have a comment too. I'm thinking that um, and I like your thought, Wayne, that because we're not that far from being able to do that if we have the good data. right course, we will also I would, as a clinician, want to cross the dementia risk reduction with how well different ones reduce cardiovascular risk because that's what we've tended to use
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
2: um, you kind of have to look at both.
4: Mm.
2: Now, these are pretty good ones, um, but um, I don't know specific statistics.
1: Yeah. Very interested to see what's next with regard Mm -hmm. to uh, Mm -hmm.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care.
4: Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the Goals of Care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening.
1: Uh, our third paper, subjective cognitive decline, cognitive reserve indicators, and the incidence of dementia, really, really resonated with me. Uh, I uh, am currently very much involved in um, uh, a screening and assessment and management initiative in the in the community, uh, with the goal of trying to get to uh, patients. Uh, uh, either very early in their trajectory uh, of dementia or just make sure that they are safe and well uh, at home with the understanding of the consequences of downstream. And so I found this article to be um, extremely interesting with regard to its approach. Dr. Sloan, can you lead us through it?
2: I, I would agree with you too, although you know the spin I'll put on it is that it really illustrates how hard it is to come up with anything that you should ask everybody. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, it reports a large longitudinal epidemiologic study of healthy community dwelling adults age 65 and older. And they were trying to figure out, you know, can you ask them questions that will help you know whether they're developing dementia or do you have to you know, do a formal test? And so they asked about cognitive reserve and subjective cognitive function. So I have to explain what each of these is. Um, Subjective cognitive decline was measured by asking two questions. Have you tended to forget things recently? And do you have to make more effort to remember things than you used to? Answering either question, yes, classified the person as having subjective cognitive decline. They think they're they're losing it. (laughs) Now, I've tended to to discount questions like this because I've always felt they were more indicative of anxiety than of incipient cognitive impairment. But this study, after adjustment for covariates such as cardiovascular risk factors, history of head injuries, sensory problems, age, baseline cognition, found that subjective cognitive decline was associated with incident dementia at an odds ratio of 2.4. This is not a real strong association, but it is a significant association. The other thing they looked at was what's called cognitive reserve. And this one I have more trouble with because, you know, we. We know about physiological reserve, you know, mm. the amount of something that the body doesn't need to use every day, which is available during times of stress or to buffer against you know, disease or aging-related losses. You know, for example, no young adult needs 125 milliliters per minute of kidney function normally, but it's nice to have this extra capacity, reserve capacity, because... Um, their renal function declines due to age and cardiovascular disease, and still most people just do fine as they get older. Of course. So cognitive re- reserve is a trickier, you know, in this, because um, how do you measure that? And so what they did was look at education, occupational complexity, and cognitive involvement in late life, you know, where they did Sudoku and stuff like that. Um, when they used similar analytical techniques to control for known dementia risk, they found an association of 1.9 between low cognitive reserve and incident dementia. Mm-hmm. So, when they looked at the two together, they found that the people with both low cognitive reserve and subjective cognitive decline had the strongest association with incident dementia, an odds ratio of 5.5 before adjustment for other risk factors and 3.6 after
1: adjustment. So, so that's significant, but um, what, what do you take away from this, from this study, Dr. Sloan? Uh,
2: well, I'm not going to change my practice, and I would not encourage you to do any community screening with these questions. Um, you know, screening for memory, you know, how people think their memory is, it it's just opens a can of worms, you know, um, not just anxiety, but whole other things. You know, in this study, 44% of people screen positive, you know. I can tell you, I worry about my memory once in a while. Um, I'd like to believe that that's not, that's a pretty normative thing. And that combined with the weak association they found makes asking about memory a bad screening test. You're just going to end up with all kinds of people who are going to um, need to be screened. And uh, it's better to do a simple cognitive screen in all people over 75 or wait for the patient or family member to present with cognitive concerns. That's my opinion.
1: Uh, I mean, this this kind of falls to me as um, the snowflake principle of geriatrics. You know, no two are alike, and you cannot assume one from another. And uh, I this article made me think of my grandfather. May he rest. In his 90s, um, you know, he never knew where his keys were, never, you know— Uh, Was always asking, where's this? Where's that? Had 10 grandchildren, of which I was the oldest, and he'd go through every name before he got to mine on the phone, and and folks thought that he had cognitive issues. Well, after he died, we realized that he had been managing six mutual funds on his own and uh, with significant return. So all I can say is we need a little bit more work on, on how we are going to address this issue of screening so that we don't open up a whole, a whole can of worms.
2: Now we could spend a, we could spend a whole hour just talking about
1: these issues
2: because it's very tough to know. I mean, we know it's an important issue. Dementia is a big, big problem. Absolutely. And worry about dementia is a big, big problem, too. Absolutely.
1: Our last uh, paper, Rejection of Care and Aggression Among Older Veterans with Dementia, the Influence of Background Factors and Interpersonal Triggers. Uh, this article will resonate with mm-hmm. anyone who has set foot into a long-term care setting to provide uh, care. Um, uh, Probably the most frustrating thing for staff is the individual who, uh, who has uh, the finding of dementia and has um, aggressive behaviors in which care cannot be provided, uh, and everyone just kind of throws up their hands at some point without knowing what to do. So, Dr. Brown, tell us about, about this article and what it shares with us.
3: You um, have have really, I think, hit the nail on the head, Wayne. We know aggressive behavior and the rejection of care we provide can throw off even the most trained and seasoned individual working in a long-term care facility. These behaviors interfere with providing high-quality care, unfortunately. We can all likely think of at least one example where it's led to the increased use of psychotropic drugs, physical restraints, injuries, and increased burden to the caregiver. So I think this study is really important uh, in thinking about ways that we can support our folks with dementia, particularly veterans with dementia.
4: Wow.
3: So they, um, the authors define distressing behaviors um, and said, distressing behaviors are often an expression of an unmet need that arise from two interacting sets of conditions. So the first is often background factors or individual characteristics that are relatively stable. These include sociodemographic attributes, underlying health, functional, and psychosocial status, and then also proximal factors, which can be compromising fluctuating states of physical and psychological unmet needs and environmental conditions that trigger the occurrence of behaviors. However, exactly how specific proximal factors such as interpersonal relationships interact with background factors to influence the rejection of care and aggression remains unclear. Taking this a step further, service in the military is an additional background factor that likely contributes to an individual with dementia's behaviors. Managing behaviors behaviors utilizing the need-driven dementia compromised behavioral model has not been studied previously in veterans. So the study highlighted here aimed to test the relationship between background factors, interpersonal triggers, rejection of care, and aggression among veterans living with dementia in long-term care settings. The authors used a mixed-method secondary analysis of program evaluation data from the Staff Training in Assisted Living Residences Veterans Health Administration Intervention, or the STAR-VA, studying 315 older veterans. The authors hypothesized that both interpersonal triggers and age, marital status, education level, and a history of combat exposure, cognitive and functional status, and anxiety and depression symptoms would all have direct effects on rejection of care and aggression. Rejection of care was directly affected by interpersonal triggers and background factors such as depression, anxiety, and cognitive status. Aggression was directly affected by both interpersonal triggers as well as functional status. Both function and depression had indirect effects on aggression, likely related to the frustration of of that particular individual. Seemingly logical, as the disease state advances in dementia, one has more need for assistance and the more frustrated that individual may become. The findings highlighted here emphasize the importance of developing and implementing interventions that improve those interpersonal relationships, which can, turn, which can in turn improve comfort and hopefully decrease anxiety. The results also support targeting modalities of treatment for those with depressive symptoms who also have dementia, um, and that's been supported in studies in the past. Wayne, Phil, any takeaways for you for this article?
1: You know, Dr. Dr. Brown, as I'm as I'm listening to you um, wonderfully describe the takeaways from this article, I, I I am remiss to think that I might be um, uh, um, uh, taking too lowest. I'm to start over again, Dr. Brown. As I've listened to you uh, wonderfully review the article, you know, I can't help but think without without sounding uh, naive um, that at the end of the day, it seems to me that it doesn't matter if you have dementia, if you um, live in long-term care, um, you're still an individual who wants to be approached and, um, and related to like anybody else does. And, you know, I think we learn in our lives, you know, that if we approach somebody in one way, it's going to, um, it may, it may solicit a response that we don't want. And we've also learned the power of the word no, and what that triggers, especially for those of us who have uh, had toddlers in our lives at one point or another, you know, I I really do think the interpersonal connection and treating people the way we want to be treated is like, it seems to me that's the first step.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: It is, you can look at it from so many different angles. For example, you know, Tom Kitwood, you know, who years ago wrote this book, Dementia Reconsidered. Um, very interesting way to think about dementia. He would say that aggression or anger or um, refusal of care you know, has a positive side to it because the person is assertive of themselves, and long-term care wants people to be passive. And um, so there's, uh, I, I think your point is well taken, Wayne, that um, if they're giving us a message that we should act differently, well, maybe we should. Yeah. I realize it's not that simple because some people are very difficult, but still, you know, in work that we've done around um, ADLs, you sure can make a difference if you treat people differently.
1: And that's what I was trying to say. I did not want to simplify this issue, but um, I do believe that as Dr. Brown discussed, the interpersonal relationships are frankly crucial, no matter where you are and who you are trying to relate to.
2: I have to tell you one other story because it's just so interesting. (laughs) We were doing this study of people who refused to be bathed or who fought during bathing. And there was this woman who just fought and kicked and screamed and would never you know, ha- have a good experience. And the psychologist was working with me, um, started talking to her, you know, after, you know, and just started talking to her and they got a conversation going. And she said, well, what do you say we take a bath? No problem. Yeah. That was it. Yep. She just wanted to be treated like a human
1: being. Yep, yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Sloan and Dr. Brown, uh, after reviewing these four articles, I can't help but think of my favorite potato chip. You just can't eat one, and when it comes to JAMDA and its articles, you just can't read one. So JAMDA, potato chips, it's like peanut butter and chocolate. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. You just can't read one article. You just can't look at one issue. But, hey, take a look at the July 2021 issue. Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, thank you again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Happy to do
2: it, and thank you so much, Wayne. For
3: Thank you.
1: References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for JAMDA On The Go.
0: Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex, A-P-E-X, org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.